So wait, you're complaining about cops shooting people, and now you only want the cops to have guns? Oh yeah, well I think you're crazy if you think average people need to have stockpiles of weapons and ammo designed to fight in wars! Well, if you're for gun control, you can unfriend me! Hey, it's Unfriend Me, everybody. Hi, I'm Scott Johnson with Justin Robert Young. Hi, Justin. I swear to God, we're, this is this is simultaneously the best and worst idea we've ever had. <laughs> it does feel that way. Like, we were talking pre-show. We don't have to get into it again, but Justin makes a really good point that, you know, this is one of these shows where we don't, we come into it with a little, with a little trepidation. It makes us nervous because these are big issues, man big stuff we have to talk about and um yeah you know we don't want to some would say my mother would say well son that's that's a good thing if you didn't feel that way i'd worry about you in other words the fact yeah. that we're concerned in that regard is actually good for us for our community and for the show so so justin i think we can sleep well at night It'll well uh, uh that's uh if we are not forced to sleep by angry mobs <laughs> ripping us apart because we're <laughs> dealing with these kinds of topics uh you know i'll tell you what this is why I feel really good about this show and why I would would very much, and I don't do this often because I'm very self-depreciating about the stuff that I do. Right. But, you know, there was a, a great article in the Washington Post today about how uh, Russia kind of manipulated social media during the election. Mm. And it wasn't as one might think, at least by the evidence that we see now. Effectively, what they did is they took hot button issues, many of which we are going to talk about or have talked about on this show, and they highlighted the most inflammatory posts, whether or not real posts, whether or not they were uh, from one side or the other, to sow discord amongst the American electorate mm. on both sides, right? All yeah. sides. Right. Both sides is a dumb thing, but all sides, right? Mm. The most passionate people were the most inflamed and i will say that this is something that i would recommend if you enjoy this recommend it to like-minded people that you uh, have uh, a discourse with because i think the point of this show is to say there can be a civil dialogue even on this kind of stuff and again the point is never to make you think something but rather just to think along with us yeah and that thing we do at the top of the show is about the most fired up and fake it's going to get. In other words, the whole goal of that is to be ridiculous. In fact, half the time, the thing uh, you read, not even half the time, like who knows which of the two stances either of us even leans toward. It's all for good fun. The rest of the show is about communication, discussion, uh, bringing other ideas to the table. Sometimes it might get a little yeah. heated. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so far I think we're accomplishing this goal. I haven't. We haven't had really any feedback saying, oh my gosh, you guys are so biased, or oh my gosh, you guys have got it all wrong, or whatever. We've had a few moments, a couple of French people maybe. <laughs> who, we might uh, we might be getting into some some French uh, some French dialogue. Uh, yeah, listen, uh, we are going to save the world if uh, we are alive to see it happen. Otherwise, we are just going to be subsumed by the chaos mm. because we decide to do back-to-back -back episodes like we've just done. We just got out of the frying pan of talking about healthcare in America. And now we are jumping right into the fire by way of your popular vote to talk about gun control two weeks after the most deadly mass shooting yeah. in American history. And keep in mind, I mean, part, Modern of the, American history. part of the reason people probably voted this direction 
And that you at home, by the way, if you keep track of our Twitter account, Scott Johnson and Justin R. Young, we put up these polls and, and you guys help us vote. We have one for after the show today for next week's topic. You guys mm-hmm. picked gun control probably because it is in our uh, collective conscience at the moment, given that horrible tragedy. So it doesn't shock me that people went that direction. However, you know, we sort of set ourselves up for two very heavy topics in, in a row. Uh, this one, perhaps maybe the heaviest we'll ever have to approach outside of the eventual conversation we'll have about abortion. Uh <laughs> That'll come whenever it'll come. We have to we're space things doing, out. We're not putting that on the poll. Not until no. we do this for a year. Yeah, we got to we gotta spread this stuff out a little bit, guys, or it's just too much. So uh, as is tradition, before we dive right into gun control, talk about the history of it, where we're at with it now, and take your calls. Did we get feedback last week regarding our healthcare no. discussion? Oh, my word, did we? Of course, you can always send your feedback to justinrobertyoung at gmail.com. Again, justinrobertyoung at gmail.com. Our first email about our healthcare episode last week comes from Patrick from France, who's also a co-host on a Warcraft podcast. Uh, He wrote, while I understand the need to talk about uh, America only, I think we all have a very narrow uh, national vision of our issues, and that's a big disservice we do to ourselves. In the case of healthcare, I feel that many people think, quote, it simply doesn't work, end quote. A quick look at any country that implemented it can show that it does, in fact, work. And contrary to what Scott was saying, nobody is saying that they'd be better off with a different system. We do want it to work better, sure. We'd like to tweak it, of course, but single payer is absolutely the best system we have, and we, who have tried it, all agree. Which is why it's so annoying when people draw conclusions from afar. I mean, you can't know... uh, you can't know you don't like sushi if you've never tried it. Sure, it's flabby and gross looking, but it tastes delicious. My two cents and great show. Even my socialist scarf agrees. What kind of sushi you got in France that you would describe it as flabby? That's weird. I would never. Yeah, call no, it should be. It should be uh, uh, stiff, right? Yeah, rigid. You know, sushi should be rigid. rigid whether it's sushi. Uh, yeah, if it's a roll, it should be rigid. If it's a sushi on a like individual sushi things, it should be uh, rigid, not flabby. Something wrong with French sushi. Okay, I want to say this to Patrick real quick. Yeah. Uh, he the reason I think it needed to be framed in the American point of view because that's where yeah. the debate is right now. Not just because that's where the debate is, but also because Patrick represents what many on one side of this debate would call the globalist view, and they don't like it. So what Patrick is saying is we need to have a more than just our borders view on these types of things, look from without ourselves. Now, I happen to agree with Patrick on a lot of that, but but him talking will make that side go or sides of this issue go, oh, my gosh, there's another globalist freaking socialist goofball over there telling us what to do and i'm and i'm not saying that that's wrong that he should i think he should and i think we should be more mind minded like that that's not that i share their opinion in that regard but i just want patrick to help to sort of understand why why what he says seems offensive to some and we are framing part of this part of these arguments are framed within that context of some people think everyone else should shut up and we have some kind of manifest destiny and exceptionalism and anyway. yeah, you know, I, I, I went back and forth with, with Patrick a little bit. And, and ultimately, we kind of settled on the idea that the one of the other frustrating things that I think happens when when uh, folks from other countries, specifically in Europe, I would say in any country that's not India, China or Russia starts to talk about, well, we do these things over here. You should do them over there, assuming that we would take a federal stance on it. Mm-hmm 
is that the sizes of our countries are just way different. And and we have a unique system in America where similar sized countries, bodies, body politics, right, can federally implement their own system and, and they can try different things in the way that Massachusetts uh, has. And that's something that I have always thought is is kind of an untapped resource that that we we probably shouldn't be looking at a top down federal system before we can see it work on on a state system where not to say that it couldn't work, but it can at least be tweaked a little bit easier before we get to the big stage of of of, of a federal system. And, and uh, that's that's a that's a, an interesting an element that I always that I always tend to find frustrating is that like, well, let's not assume that these things are apples to apples. Right. Or that we have to or that we have to clone what everyone else is doing. Exactly. Like there's going to be differences between those working systems anyway. I totally agree. And we got an email from Ken in Canada who speaks a little bit to this. He says, I wasn't going to comment on this episode. There are unique challenges to the American system that would not allow a socialist health care system, blah, blah, blah. Then Scott, he's saying blah, blah. I'm not skipping his stuff. Then Scott mentioned Canadians who don't like socialist health care and would presume, uh, prefer to do away with it. I mean, maybe. I'm sure there are Canadian flat earthers as well, but I've yet to meet one. I've lived here for all my 40 years, argued with many Canadians about a great many things from my ultralight uh, wing, my ultra right wing dad who'd vote for a crack smoking mayor if it meant voting against a Canadian liberal to my communist college roommates, uh, none of whom argued that they'd prefer to do away with our health care system in favor of an American style one. Sure, we debate about uh, how we'd all make it better. Uh, it's a cr- it's a far cry from those fancy European healthcare systems, after all. Uh, but ditch it, never, he says. So, a Canadian perspective, an important one. There are they're sitting right there on top of us. They're a lot like us in many many ways, and they figured out a, a a method that seems to work. And he's right. Doesn't matter where you're at, dissenters and people who are pro your system are going to be there, and you're going to find them. Mm, they're so good at stuff they should win a Stanley Cup. Nick from Western Massachusetts, who's generally happy with his health insurance, says, my biggest problem I had with the Massachusetts health system was when I was a college student, 2007 to 2011, I went to a Massachusetts state school. To lay the groundwork, the penalty for not having health insurance in Massachusetts is the state garnishes your tax refund uh, to pay into, quote unquote, the health system. My employer at the time, a department store, offered part-time health insurance. However, Massachusetts didn't recognize it as qualifying health insurance, so they didn't uh, that so they didn't offer to Massachusetts residents. Well, wait, I'm 18, right? I can get on my parents' health care. Well, not so quick. My parents owned a restaurant, unfortunately, that suffered greatly and had to shut down due to the 08 through 2010 recession. They couldn't afford to put me on their health care at that point. Massachusetts Health was available, but my parents had this restaurant listed as one of their assets, regardless of it failing or not, so I wasn't available for the tax credit. So I would be paying something like $190 a month, which, as a college student, I couldn't afford. My third and least desirable option was uh, getting health care through my school. It became something that I had to take out student loans for. I would uh, say it was around $1,500 a year, and I had to make the tough choice of relocating to a different state school so I could commute because my parents couldn't afford to pay room and board at my first choice of college. What I'm saying is every system has its issues. I think we have a bigger problem with our healthcare system as a whole. $35 for an Advil at the hospital. My girlfriend got her gallbladder removed when she was 27. And the cost of the operation was (laughs) $45,000. She only paid $50 with state insurance. And there is no way 
of getting put under anesthesia, getting three tiny incisions and having a laser do all the work that, that cost that much money. If that got under control, healthcare would be much more affordable for the average American. Okay, so that's interesting. He's basically pointing out a very specific case. And the line that sticks out to me is, if that got under control, healthcare would be more affordable. He has cherry-picked one aspect. I, I happen to agree with him. Uh, I think that stuff's completely out of control. But this idea that we all think there's one aspect that we've seen specifically in our lives that if we tweak that, if we cherry pick that out and work on that, that that's going to solve the whole thing. I think we're I think we're being a little short sighted when we do that. And I do it, too. We want these things to be simple as human beings. We want to see the pattern, lock it down and make it go. It's a big, complicated, entrenched thing with billions of dollars on the line. And that's yeah. usually the key here is that there are billions of dollars on the line. So while I completely agree with him that that's one thing to do, how would one enforce that? Are we talking about state mandated federal laws being put in place that meant that these costs need to get to some certain magical number? And I mean, what I'll, are those I'll numbers? What, this, is, this is a whole nother episode. It's a whole other thing. You're right. And, and and I agree. We got a great email from somebody who worked at a hospital that I I. I've deliberately tried to steer us away from this topic of conversation. A, because I do feel passionate about it, and I think that it is probably a, a conversation that I would more likely, more like to have. However, when you bring it up, it tends to kind of seem pedantic to the fairly A or B kind of argument, like should we have single-payer healthcare or should we not have single-payer healthcare? Mm -hmm. And I would rather focus the conversation on that. But there is... I think another episode or another topic that can be had on why are we arguing about who pays this bill and why are we not arguing about why the gosh darn thing is so freaking high. Yeah. Uh, and and there, we had a great email. Do your own research. Look up hospital charge master mm -hmm. and go from there. And you'll be depressed. Here's an email from. Oh, crap. My screen just went weird. Hold on. Oh, crap. What's the name on this one? Oh, Jane, Janine. Janine. There it is. Janine. It went off the page. I enjoyed your episode on healthcare. I am, however, disappointed you missed Reagan mandating treatment in the emergency room because people were being turned away and dying. This regulation triggered a massive spike in the cost of healthcare, which is why Clinton proposed the changes he did. This is an important part of why, uh, uh, sorry, because otherwise it seems like it came out of nowhere. Uh, I remember this mandate. And I remember at the time I was very young, but I remember thinking it was good because it appealed to my emotional reaction of, oh, my gosh, how could you turn somebody away from yeah. emergency health care, emergency need needed, you know, whatever it is, you're bleeding to death and you get turned away because you don't have insurance. That seemed barbaric. So a change to that seems smart to me. But once again, uh, you know, I, again, the veracity of, or the truth of this is probably uh, researchable and we could find out all the information we needed about what that actually did percentage wise to cost over time. And then, you know, accounting for inflation and everything, but just on the face of it, oftentimes what seems like a really smart thing to do has a cascade effect that jacks other stuff up. And perhaps Janine has po pointed one of those out, I guess. Well done. Uh, and we didn't talk about it because we were waiting for your email. Yeah. Ivan writes, so the question you should have tackled is, is healthcare a right? If not, why not? If so, why is it so hard to implement? Who and for what reasons oppose it? From my outside view, I think the problem comes down to capitalism gone mad. The reason given by a lot of congressmen, senators who oppose it is that premiums would go up 
But the truth is they don't have to. They only go up if the insurance companies want to increase their profits. Money rules the U.S. far more than it should, and while, yes, the cost is important, the profits which feed into the pockets of the already super-rich should not be the guiding principle when running a country. I'll stop now, otherwise I'll end up going on and on about Trump. <laughs> All right. Uh, I just would say this. Um, the topic of is healthcare a right or is it not a right is a perfect topic for another healthcare related episode. And I think we should probably tackle that one at some point, because I think that's a really interesting question that can make its own, it can be an umbrella to its own set of issues, topics and back and forth. Um, so I appreciate Ivan bringing that up. I think that's a really important distinction. There are some people who absolutely believe that it is not a right. And there are many who believe it should be a basic human right. Um, and yeah, you know, and that we, we get into, I think, all of our conversations on some level, as we have already seen a, uh, a a firefight break out in our chat room about us calling this episode about gun control and not about gun safety. Mm. All of our topics will really be on some level initially topics about semantics in terms of how we define these things. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, some people would make the argument that do you want healthcare to be a right or do you want people to live longer? Mm -hmm. And do you want more people to live longer? And and that is where philosophically, I believe many people would say, you know, that there are good conversations to be had. Yeah. Right here on the show is the hope and the dream. Yes. Which you can uh, go ahead and give five stars on. Uh, <laughs> we on have uh, we have one final email from Matt from Birmingham or Birmingham. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, this is uh, uh, he's talking about Obamacare. OK. Uh, all right, cool. He says, shortly after it came into effect, I had to buy health insurance through my employer. And to support my wife and myself, it cost me monthly premiums of $250 off a yearly income of about $24,200 after taxes, which equaled about $369 a week or $1,000.476 per month. Boy, that's high. So it took one-sixth of my monthly income away. Then you add the fact that with Athena, or sorry, at, at the no. time, I almost said it, why would I say Athena? Uh, the God of love. Anyway, I still had no health coverage until my wife and I had to be uh, in medical debt for $3,000 before the insurance started. That's He's basically talking about your um, your deductible. Uh, then we had to run another 3000 worth of additional medical bills before the insurance finally took care of everything. So by the time all was said and done, nearly 50% of my income had to go to health care. So uh, I do not look at 50% out of my pocket as affordable health care to me. Neither would I. I then, in 2016, lost my job, applied on healthcare.gov with the projected income of 2016 to be about 15000 and was able to get the best health insurance ever with Blue Cross, uh, 226 a month for my wife and I, and a $750 per person, not full family like Aetna, deductible, and 1500 per person out of pocket. Suddenly, my wife was able to be fully taken care of uh, with much less financial stress. Then it came time to renew in 2017. I was still mostly unemployed, jumping between unemployment and tech contracts here and there. So I reapplied on healthcare.gov with the same projected income for 2017 to be about 15000 And we got zero subsidies from healthcare.gov. With the, clo uh, the closest to the same insurance coverage we had in 2016, costing now over $1,400 a month with a $1,000 per person deductible and $2,000 per person out-of-pocket limit. So now in 2017, we have no health insurance. My wife suffers a lot of physical and mental pain. And we're forced uh, to only what we an ER visit can do or other solutions like UAB, Hospital Charity Care. By the way, that 
people relying on the ER for their medical care is goes to the other person's email. Anyway, so I don't support or I didn't support Obamacare. Then it hurt me. Then it helped me. And then it refused to help me, leaving me to feel like it was only a brief solution that quickly fell apart. I don't think he's alone in this. I think that um, a lot of people have felt this way. I can only speak from my experience. It was a huge improvement for me because I had kids with pre-existing conditions who I talked about this last week briefly, but they were not able to get help before the Obamacare changes. And now yeah. they now they do. Um, that being said, my rates went up this year. Um, there's a lot of talk about subsidies not uh, being halted artificially by Donald Trump uh, through weird means uh, from within the administration to help it fail so they can repeal it. Um, I don't know how much that would apply to his exact uh, needs for healthcare this year. Um, this right or this uh, Matt who's writing us in, but um, you know may have something to do with it. But once again, this just his email helps illustrate just how damned complicated it is. It's just so much more than 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 easy, and it's also everyone having their own experience. And he has had three experiences: one that yeah. sucked, one that was great, and one that sucked worse than the one that sucked within three years' time, which is just nuts. And I think he's not alone. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people like that. And and ultimately, it's a a, a a testament to what happens when when you have a system that is you know being run by a you know a posts that get reelected right mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden the people that are in control of this system don't like this system mm -hmm. and and you have stuff like oh we're gonna let it fail which is like. OK, I don't know exactly how politically viable that is, but but you never know. Right. Uh, it's it's always up to whoever is running the ship at the time that we're, we're taking the poll. So yep. uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in. Uh, I suspect we're probably going to get a bunch of emails about this episode and they can all go to Justin Robert Young at Gmail dot com. Indeed. Uh, so guns, let's uh, let's let's reload. Yeah. Ah. Okay. I got. I see what you did there. And talk about our our topic this week, which is gun control. Obviously, this is something that is a very uh, hot button issue, considering what happened in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So we are going to try, as we always do, to take as much of an academic view of it as possible, and we'll start where it all begins: the Second Amendment. Muskets. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. This is what it reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, James Madison originally proposed the Second Amendment shortly after the Constitution was officially ratified as a way to provide more power to state militias, which today are considered the National Guard. It was deemed a compromise between the Federalists, who supported the Constitution as it was, ra uh, as it was ratified, and the Anti-Federalists, those who supported states having more power, having just used guns and other arms to ward off the English, the amendment was originally created to give citizens the opportunity to fight back against a tyrannical federal government. There are two views academically to the Second Amendment. Would you call them the philosophies or interpretations? How would you? Interpretations. Okay. Yeah. All right. The way you look at it. Yeah. Collective view. The amendment gives each state the right to maintain and train a formal militia that can provide protection against an oppressive federal government or the individual that the amendment gives every citizen the right to own guns free of federal regulations to protect themselves in the face of danger. Mm. Real quick, just before we move on. Yeah. My reading of it 
has always leaned more toward the state and the and the well-regulated militia because it literally says a well-regulated militia necessary for the security of a free state. Now, I know others would say, well, what about the next line? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I think the context is pretty clear. The idea that I would read that and go, oh, well, that means I need to have four assault rifles in my basement is a bit of a stretch. It's always been a stretch for me, and I kind of think guns are cool when used properly and in hunting uh, situations. I like to shoot me a target. I like me some clay pigeons. I don't think guns are like the devil, and I like some video games with gunplay in them. I'm just saying, it, the, the strict interpretation, if I'm reading it right, if we're using English as our basis, it seems like it applies more to the, to the first uh, <laughs> collective view rather than the individual view. Am I totally crazy to think that? Uh, safe to say that the disagreement on that issue is uh, effectively the basis of this episode. Uh, uh, to be to be totally honest, I I don't know if. I mean, I'm just know, reading the, the, the it. I'm just reading it. That's all I'm doing is reading those sure. words. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the the Constitution is a living document, and it is uh, a very odd thing. The American experiment, for which has birthed uh, a superpower and a relatively microscopic amount of time you know nothing nothing put the context of the history of our nation in uh in in stark relief than when i was in edinburgh getting wasted during the day stumbling over castles that were like 400 years older than the country right <laughs> right uh so the idea of like is the constitution a living document or a framework for us to continue to modify or is it these hollowed guiding principles for which we need to, uh, uh, you know, be cognizant of, or else we fall apart? Is a larger kind of uh, idea, and I think to to be totally honest here, it's it's almost irrelevant because we've moved. We now understand that there are two camps on this, mm -hmm. and the debate has moved far farther, uh, far much, far past rather, whether or not. You know, because it's not like people who are arguing for gun control are like, yep, we need to direct all the guns to our state militia, right? You know, they're, they're like, we just need to get guns off the street. Yeah, and the people who are, whether you're for it or against it, you refer to it as people's Second Amendment rights. Even those who are against uh, or want more guns off the street, want more gun control, they still say they refer to it when discussing it and debating it as people's Second Amendment rights. So it's like they're all over it already. They've already they're they're over the whole interpretation, and they're now into the place of all right. Well, forget about interpretation. Should these guns be on the street or shouldn't they? That's kind of where it's at now. And obviously, that's even a more deep conversation. But I agree with you. Like it's no longer that that philosophical debate is no longer the thing they're all sitting around in in the parlor talking about. They've moved yeah. on. Yeah. Anyway, it's just interesting. All right. Let's get into some of the Supreme Court history. In 1876, the U.S. versus Crookshank. The case involved members of the Ku Klux Klan not allowing black citizens the right to their standard freedoms, such as the right to assembly and the right to bear arms. As part of the ruling, the court said that the right of each individual to bear arms was not granted under the Constitution. Ah, so when it served the culture of uh, pro-slavery and anti-black, uh, well, they were just happy to say that that interpretation was wrong and wasn't mm. granted under the Constitution. Hmm, interesting. I'm sensing a pattern. Okay, keep going. The U.S. versus Miller in 1939. Uh, in that case, Jack Miller and Frank Layton were arrested for carrying an unregistered shot-off so shotgun across state lines. 
which uh, had been prohibited since the National Firearms Act was enacted five years earlier. Miller argued that the National Firearms Act violated their rights under the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court disagreed, however, saying that in absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a shotgun having barrels of less than 18 inches in length at this time has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. Yeah, this gun of 1939. This, this, yeah, anyway, whatever. I mean, what they're doing is saying that's too much firepower for somebody to have is what they're saying. That's a weird device the founding fathers would not have had in mind, which is the same argument people say today. They're like, well, no one had M16s in mind when they when they forged the Second Amendment. The the guns they had had to be shot, reloaded, took forever, incredible maintenance, misfired all the time. We're not talking about the same. You know, there's no apples and apples here. And I would I would say that that's. It's interesting that we all think this is a modern thing where it's like we're just talking about assault weapons. Nope. 1939. Shotgun. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, let's zoom all the way up to 2008. The District of Columbia versus Heller. The case centered around Dick Heller, a licensed special police officer in D.C. who challenged the nation capital's handgun ban. For the first time, the Supreme Court ruled that despite state laws, individuals were not part of a state militia who are not part of a state militia did have the right to bear arms as part of the ruling. The court wrote that, quote, the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes, such as self-defense within the home. That is similar to uh, the McDonald versus City of Chicago case, which challenged the city's ban on private handgun ownership. And in a similar five to four ruling, the court affirmed its decision in the Heller case, saying that the Second Amendment apply, uh, applies equally to the federal government and the states. Mm. I'm so torn on this. Like, my gut reaction when you read that is those are the right decisions that people should be able to protect their homes, their families. Um, and it and it contradicts other feelings I have about gun control, which, uh, you know, would absolutely bar a nutbag from getting into the 32nd floor of a casino hotel and raining down hellfire on everybody below yeah um so so our goal here today is you know figure out what the middle ground there there is um why i I, also people they're going to call in i'm sure we're going to get emails about this we know other things happened between 1939 and 2008 We know that. You don't have to tell us that. Um, and there are probably some landmarks. Oh, no, no, no. Please, please tell us that. Well, please Just tell this. us that, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is uh, do not assume that, that we are purposely skipping anything that may matter. These are just sort of moments or points in time that make, uh, you know, the kind of shape the, the, the arguments that we're having today. Sure. And yeah. a lot of what came between then is gun control legislation. 1927, the U.S. Congress passes a law banning the mailing of concealable weapons. 1934, the National Firearms Act, which we referenced before, regulating the manufacture, sale, and possession of fully automatic firearms like submachine guns is approved by Congress. 1938, the Federal Firearms Act places the first limitations on selling ordinary firearms. Persons selling guns are required to obtain a federal firearms license at the annual cost of $1 and to maintain records of the name and address of the persons to whom firearms are sold. Gun sales to persons convicted of violent felonies were prohibited. Mm. In 1968, the Gun Control Act of 1968 uh, was enacted for the purpose of keeping firearms out of the hands of those not legally entitled to possess them because of age, criminal background, and incompetence. Uh, the act regulated the import, 
of guns, expands the gun dealer licensing and record-keeping requirements, and places specific limitations on the sale of handguns. Uh, and then in 1972, the Federal Bureau of a Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is created, listing as part of its mission the control of illegal use and sale of firearms and the enforcement of federal firearms laws. ATF issues firearms licenses and conducts firearms licensee qualifications and compliance inspections. Mm -hmm. Now, when we we'll, we'll jump ahead again in time, but I didn't realize the ATF, this has been educational because I didn't realize the ATF was that young. Like I figured the ATF had been around like Elliot Ness time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, it shows you how quickly things become, you know, just the law, right? Mm -hmm. Just something that's always been there. You know, I'm sure that there, there are kids in school now that will grow up assuming that Obamacare is just a thing mm -hmm. and it's kind of always been there. And, yep. and you know, it, it's it's or that the idea of that has been around and been a part of the federal government for a very long time. It's it's crazy to think of how soon if it's not in our worldview, if we are not seeing it firsthand, how much we just use what our reality is as the social mores that we build the rest of our reality. Absolutely. In 94, the Brady gun and assault weapon ban. I remember this. This was a big Clinton era thing. Uh, Brady, the Brady bill being based on the very name of, I forgot his full name. Tom Brady, Tom, no, the quarterback Tom, of the no, Patriots. No, not Tom Brady. The other guy that got shot during Reagan's assassination attempt. Uh, can find a wheelchair. Can't think of his name. Bob Brady, Tom Brady, Larry Brady. I believe it was Bill Brady. Bill Brady. Was it uh, freaking Jan Brady? <laughs> I can't remember his name. Anyway, that guy. Chat room will tell us. Uh, yeah, hold on. We'll figure it out. Go yeah, ahead. While we're looking it up, uh, it imposed a bunch of new stuff, like a five-day five waiting period on the purchases of guns. Uh, a lot of the stuff we think about now, in fact, very recently. Jim Brady. There you go. And it was, cl it was close. Um, Press secretary to Ronald Reagan. The Yes, exactly. And he was, again, iconic in that he was injured in that, in that uh, particular thing. Anyway, the Violent Control and Law Enforcement Act of 94 prohibited the sale, manufacture, importation, and possession of a number of specific types of assault weapons and that sort of stuff. Now, here's the thing. It was set to expire 10 years later on 2004, where many would have presumed some sort of renewal would happen. Congress failed to reauthorize it. It is no longer uh, a law or act that is a functional enforceable act because uh, Congress didn't do anything about it. So... That's interesting in yeah, the sense Yeah, by the that, way, yeah. like, what is that? Is that right after? No, that's right before election day on a federal election year. Yeah. yeah. Which is just like an absolute dead zone for mm -hmm. any kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing jack nope. right before an election. Dude, we were in the middle of, of fighting over Kerry v. Bush. and That was Kerry, yeah, Kerry v. Bush, right? Yep, and there was no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't even think I knew, I don't even think I heard about the reauthorization not happening or le that legislation just dying. That was that Well, was you like... know, it's just the, the noise was so high on everything. Mm -hmm. Right. We were we were talking about, you know, Kerry windsurfing and uh, and, and the Iraq war was still in, in full pitch. You know, there's bodies coming back from from Iraq. And this is just another thing that in at our most divided. Uh, we were yelling about. Right. Yeah. Dan Rather's 
Dan Rather's getting hoaxed by like, mm-hmm. you know, Microsoft Word uh, PDFs. And, yep. uh, it was a weird time, man. 2004, The Incredibles was ruling the box office and Scott did his first podcast officially on an RSS feed. So big year, 2004. And gun laws kind of just sat there. But then, just, Justin, you jump ahead to 97. What happened then? Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the case of Prince versus the United States, declares that the background check requirement on the Brady Handgun Violence Perfection Act is unconstitutional. The Florida Supreme Court upholds a jury $11.5 million verdict against Kmart for selling a gun to an intoxicated man who used the gun to shoot his estranged girlfriend. And major American gun manufacturers voluntarily agree to include child safety trigger devices on all new handguns. Yep, in 98, you got the Justice Department report uh, that indicates the blocking of some 69,000 handgun sales during 97 when the Brady Bill pre-signed background checks were required. And in 98, an amendment requiring a trigger lock mechanism be included with every handgun handgun sold in the U.S. is defeated by the Senate, uh, but the Senate approves an amendment requiring gun dealers to have trigger locks available for sale and creating federal grants for gun safety and education programs. So that was like their compromise i suppose um and then that same year in, two, uh, in uh, 2004 after lengthy and heated debate congress allows the 10 year old violent crime control and law enforcement act of 94 banning the sale of 19 types of military assault rifle, uh, rifles to expire as we mentioned before now all of this we've talked about so far and we'll take your call soon trust me everybody i know you got things to say if you keep calling and if you're getting to voicemail and stuff just uh, keep trying we'll bring you in we haven't talked about the nra the National yeah. Rifle Association, as much as sometimes they piss me off, I realize I have very little actual knowledge of the history of the largest, one of the largest lobbies in the history of American politics. So what's the deal with those guys? Where, well, certainly, certainly currently, obviously, the NRA is a hot button issue. Here's where every the one thing I want people to get out of this episode is every episode. I want there to be just some kind of, oh, wow, really? Kind of historical nugget. And here's what it was for me when I was doing the research. The National Rifle Association was first chartered in the state of New York. But you never think of the NRA as a, as a northern organization, right? Mm, yeah. uh, since it has so much of its, its roots these days in the south. On November 16th, 1871, wow. by Army and Navy Journal editor William Cornant uh, uh, Church and Captain George Wood Wingate, on November 25th, 1971, the group voted to elect its first corporate officers. Union Army Civil War General Ambrose Burnside, who had worked as a, Ro- a Rhode Island gunsmith and was elected president. Colonel W.C. Church was elected vice president. Captain Wingate was elected sec- secretary. Fred M. Peck was blah, 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 blah. Okay, so here was the reason why they started the, the NRA. Because... Union Army records for the Civil War indicated that its troop fired about a thousand rifle shots for each Confederate soldier hit, <laughs> causing General Burnside to lament the recruits, quote, out of 10 soldiers who are perfect in drill in the manual of arms, only one knows the purpose of sights on his gun or can hit the broad side of a barn. <laughs> the generals attributed this to the use of volley tactics devised for earlier, less accurate smoothbore muskets. Effectively... They were pissed off that even though they had won the war, the South was better at educating their citizenry about guns and wanted, in case there were further uh, you know, problems or, or need for the army in America, that 
they needed to get people better at firing weapons because they had been such crap at it earlier. It doesn't. Now, it sure doesn't sound like the NRA was originally set up as a as a lobbying arm for a, a multi-billion-dollar industry. It sounds like they were just trying to make sure they didn't suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, listen again. This is. 1871, as founded by a Union Army general, yeah, right? Yeah. The NRA formed its Legislative Affairs Division. Ah, oh, here we here go. We go yeah. To update members of the facts and analysis of upcoming bills after the National Firearms Act. Look at this. Mm. Everything's coming together. In 1934, became the first federal gun control law passed in the U.S. Carl Frederick, the NRA president in 1934, during congressional NFA hearings, testified, quote, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I seldom carry one. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the NRA supported the NFA along with the Gun Control Act of 1968, which together created a system of federally licensed gun dealers and established restrictions on particular categories and classes of firearms. Hmm. Now, now, all this sounds here, like a good idea, by the way. Like everything you've described so far, seems like a seems like a a, a great thing to do. Help, help. Here's where know. things get sticky. All right, okay. 1975, it began to focus on politics and established its lobbying arm, the Institute for Legislative Action, aka the NRA-ILA, with Carter as its. Oh, sorry, I, I left out his name. Uh, with Carter as its director. In 1977, the organization expanded its membership to focus heavily on political issues and forming coalitions with conservative politicians, most of them Republicans. Its goal was to weaken current gun laws. Knox's ILA successfully lobbied Congress to pass the Firearms Owner Protection Act uh, in 1986 and worked to reduce the powers of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives. In 1982, Knox was ousted as director of the ILA and began mobilizing outside of the NRA framework and continued and continued to promote opposition to gun control laws. Mm. Now, here's where I was unable to find statistics and if somebody else can find it, I would love to see it. The amount raised because here's something that I I I saw the numbers on but I don't have here. Mm. The NRA to this day is primarily funded by its membership dues. Right. Uh, you know, as much as it certainly gets, uh, I think, uh, many times rightful criticism for being too tied to the gun industry itself, the way that it funds itself is by membership primarily, by, by a strong margin. But what I don't know does like the Does, like, the Colt company or the, the uh, uh, I don't know who, do Glock, does the Glockenspiel company, do they throw money their way too i they assume do, they do they do but but that is dwarfed by membership dues all right so corporate gifts are, are are dwarfed by membership dues however having been around the nonprofit industry a lot i do know for a fact that big national fights in which there are two sides and you are on one side of them does a lot for recruiting membership and solicitation from donors mm. so what i don't know is the difference in memberships and major gifts to the nra past 1975 mm. what i would suspect 
is that they saw an increase. And much of what we see today in terms of their tying, uh, uh, their, their, their involvement in federal and state politics is because it is good for their membership recruitment and solicitation for major gifts. That is my guess based on being around other major nonprofit organizations that some of which struggle because they don't do it and others profit greatly or, or have a lot of money coming in greatly because they like to make big public spectacle fights. And I would say that there's probably few nonprofit organizations in America mm -hmm. that are constantly in more gigantic me versus you fights than the NRA. Yeah, I think you're probably right. All right, we're going to take our first caller, someone who's been very patient and recalling constantly. Let's see what we got here. Hi, who's this? Hey, this is Jonathan from New York. Hey, what's going on, Jonathan? What what's on your mind? How are you, how are you feeling today about the gun control debate? So here's the thing. Uh, I have a personal connection to it because about nine years ago, I was dating a girl who was driving home in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and she got shot in the throat in crossfire while c coming home from getting ice cream and is now quadriplegic. Oh, my uh, God. Jeez, that's awful. Wait, no, so hold on. Was it like now, a like a street fight or something? Or what was it? What was the deal? It was it was it was two it was two gangs shooting at each, at each other across the street. Okay. And her she was driving home, driving our friend home. Uh, and she got hit in the throat and, uh, that rendered her now quadriplegic. And she's been that way for a long time. And she still, she's, she's a huge nerd. She's a geek. She goes out to comic cons all the time. Um, she's been photographed with, uh, Daryl. I can't even remember the actor's name from walking dead. He's done a lot. He's tweeted about her and all of what she's going through, mm -hmm. but she's, you know, been effectively rendered quadriplegic due to random gun violence. Now I get that like on some level, there's not like, it's not the scope and scale of what happened last week, but there's, there's, there's that context. So I, I guess as left leaning as I am, and, as, and I'm a vegan, and I'm a, a bedwetting liberal. I just, I don't, I just don't understand the psychology of people that promote guns. Okay. So or, or let me, insist that they need them. Let me ask you this question. So uh, the difference sometimes does seem to be personal experience. Like, and, and with a lot of the debates we'll have on the show, I'm sure this is always going to be true, but, but it, with with specifically with gun violence, it's a, it's easy for a whole bunch of people to sit around and discuss it and to talk about it, and they do feel some measure of either the horror of it and the upsetness of it, or they feel a measure of the of the pride they have in their guns or them wanting to protect it or whatever. Whatever measure of whatever they're feeling, they feel it, and I don't want to take that away from people. But when they've had a very specific personal life altering and sometimes life taking event happen to them. That that is why this is such a hard thing, right? Like it's almost impossible to be academic about a thing that rendered someone you know and care about quadriplegic and nearly took their life. Um, and it, here's the flip side, yeah. Scott: is last night in my apartment in Brooklyn, someone tried to break in, and I was there with my fiance in bed. She had to get up in the morning, and I had to get up in the morning, go to work, whatever. And all I had were two, uh, like replica swords from the dark elf trilogy to defend my home <laughs> right right and, and, I was like, and you, and did, I was, and you probably didn't feel like that like, was enough did you you felt like oh crap i wish i had something more here to, it, was just yeah. it was literally it was literally probably uh well and it was 
probably like a local heroin addict trying to break into our house and like find like whatever. But like, I was like, I got these swords. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that works to stave off the home invasion. Sure. But, and then my, and then my wife was like, uh, should we buy a gun? And I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't, like, I can't, I I just can't come to terms with what it needs or what it means to own a, a, own a gun. And this comes from someone living that that grew up on a farm in like Northern Ohio. Sure. 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 All right. Well, this is a great point of view. Oh yeah. Heck yeah, man. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Yeah. It's uh, it's Justin. It's like, I mean, this is the, this is the crux of it, right? Like he's having that same thing I have. There's something about the scenario of in my home, I want to do all I can to protect and help those I, I have direct stewardship over my children, my yeah. wife, whatever. Um, and my wife feels the same way, whoever she has direct stewardship over. And we've had this discussion before. I am not a gun guy. I don't want to own guns. I, they scare me. I've had too many friends whose kids have broken into their gun cabinets and shot their foot off. In one case, a kid died, shot himself in the head. Um, not far from here. And that affected a lot of people as he was a kid in the junior high. And so everybody's kids knew him and parents and teachers and stuff. So I, I don't want anything to do with that if I can avoid it. But this that was, I, and that was a, that, that was that was a suicide or an accident. It was an accident. It was just two okay. kids goofing around and one of them accidentally shot the other kid in the head and it killed him. Um, and so those kinds of things make me I, I'm just not into it. I'm not into it. And I'm not enough of a sportsman to really care about I'll occasionally go with a friend to a shooting range or a brother-in-law or something and we'll you know there'll be guns there to rent and you're wearing all the protective gear and they have people there watching and it's this closed uh, environment and you're basically just target shooting but for me to have some concealed thing or something hidden under the bed that terrifies me but I way more than understand what it means to want to protect those around you I totally get it so when the bad guys have guns this is an argument a lot of pro-gun people have. When the bad guys got, got guns, what are you going to have? you got to have something to, to fight that off. If all we had were swords, well, then we'd be having this argument about sword ownership, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's these are the kind of calls we want. We want people with... Well, here's here's also something something to remember when we talk about we can identify a problem and then we have to identify a solution, right? Yeah. And part of the very tricky problem with gun control in America is that we have three an estimated 300 million guns mm-hmm. in the country. That's a lot. That is that is close to how many people there are in the country. Yeah. yeah. There are there are a, a lot of guns and a few ironically are uh, uh you know a lot of violence is is caused based by things that we have already prohibited, right? We mm-hmm. have we have illegal uh, uh trades of things for which gun violence is used quite a bit. The vast majority of people that are killed in America by guns are by suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, that is that is something that uh, here. Uh, if if uh, as soon as we get another call, I'll, I'll go ahead and take. Uh, uh, I'll find some of the more specific oh, stuff. But you right know now what? we have, th- uh, according to five thirty eight, we have thirty three thousand people fatally shot per year in America. Wow, that's a lot of people. Also, we need to write down a note that um, assisted suicide should be a topic of the show one day. Hi, <clears throat> you're on the air. Who's this caller? Hey, Scott, it's Ian. I am Sci-Fi. Hey, what's going on, man? Not too much. Uh, not not to uh, have Brooklyn take over this entire show, but I uh, figured I'd call <laughs> in and, uh, and have my take on stuff. Sure. Uh, so uh, personal experience and then and then thoughts on the NRA. Um, so my, 
my dad actually owns a gun. Um, and the, the reasoning behind this is that about uh, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, uh, a close personal friend of his slash coworker was essentially being stalked. Mm. And uh, it got to the point where uh, this, this individual was, was both threatening her life and threatening his because he somehow got into his head that my, my father was in a relationship with her when in reality they were just friends. Mm. Um, and basically just because, you know, he would see her, him around as often as he was, he started, you know, threatening him as well. And my dad, you know, decided that the only way to really protect himself in this situation was to get a gun license and, you know, start going to the range and buy himself a handgun as protection. Um, and I, I understand why he decided to do this. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever really dis- decided to do that myself in my life, but I totally get the gun for protection angle of owning a gun. Mm-hmm. It's farther than that, that I really have a problem with, mm. you know, like the owning, like the, the 12, 13 guns and like being, you know, gun crazy, whoopity do I'm, I'm, I'm buying this. Like I buy, you know, uh, you know, replicas of, you know, legend of Zelda, you know, people who, who start collecting, uh, you know, like assault rifles. That's when I'm like, well, eh, you're, yeah, cause you're, how you're, far that goes. you're talking about, I mean, I don't know if they're in what they, what they'd call themselves, but I think of them as enthusiasts all the way up to people who are fanatic about it and are, are thinking that right. somebody's going to come get them. So they better have as much hardware as possible in the bunker in the backyard. So there's kind of a range there, but isn't this kind of part of the whole problem is that there's no, there's no way to know. So somebody could say, well, I'm getting this gun for, for protection and and it might be 100% genuine. And that person will never use that gun for anything else. And is just there as a safeguard, like you would have anything else that's there as backup. But the problem is nobody knows is that the guy who gets a taste for it and then decides to buy more and buy more. And before you know it, he's on the 32nd floor of of a hotel in Vegas. Like, like where the the lines get real blurry. This stuff was established in a time where everyone was generally thought to have had the best interests of everything at heart. And, and right. naively or otherwise people believed that it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We all, we're all in this together. We know what guns are for mishaps will happen, but, but, but you're going to probably get taken by the, by the rheumatism anyway. So, you know, it's just a much more slapdash well, kind of thing. I, yeah, but I, I don't I, I disagree with that. I think that, that, that the point that that stuff was established. I mean, we were talking about whether or not the, the country was going to survive. Right. right? Like, right. I mean, things were far more chaotic and, and, and far more uh, life or death than they are now. We are in a, a relatively un well, I mean, not not relatively a, a unquestioned time of peace and prosperity in, in our, in our modern era. And it is because we have a relentless, uh, empathy and, and our, our pursuit to improve that I think that we focus so hard on these things. But, uh, certainly these, these laws were conceived at a time of far greater, uh, uh violence and peril. I would completely agree with yeah. you, but we were united in that in facing that peril i think uh, on the whole not every single person obviously but it wasn't like today where nobody knows anybody and nobody trusts anybody back then it was we have left an entire country to start out fresh and we and we all want to to do this we want this freedom we want to we want to oppress the people that are here but then we yeah, want to make I, our I, way i don't know i i'm i'm going to i, I i'm going to starkly disagree with you on this uh golden age of of everybody being on the same page uh yeah. as 
as we were on the road to a civil war. No, I, I agree with agree that. With that as, as well. And, 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 and you know what, Scott, I, I, I gotta, I gotta butt in here for a minute to just say this though, along those same lines yeah. of the, of the freedom, freedom, woo, woo, freedom, freedom, freedom. That's what, you know, quote unquote gun. I don't want to call them gun nuts. Uh, just gun enthusiasts. Um, they worry that, you know, taking away our goons is going to be an actual real thing if we say, you know, limit them to, you know, one or two or three or something like that. No, I completely a agree. Registry that, 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 you know, keeps track of them. Yeah. However, at the same time, I, I, I just, again, I, I just, I cannot wrap my head around somebody owning, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 of these freaking things. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that's, that's going beyond the realm of, uh, I need these to protect myself or I need these to go hunting or so on and so forth. It just doesn't make any damn sense. I I completely agree with you on most of those points. I appreciate the call. And and Justin, to your point, uh, I don't want to be misunderstood here because it's going to, it's, I want people to understand where I'm coming from. I'm not seeing that as some weird golden time where everybody was fighting for the exact same thing. What I'm saying was it was a time where you didn't have to worry about some nutbag in a modern hotel shooting at people down below. What you had to worry about was, uh, are the British coming? Uh, are we going to die because of these Indians or piss because we're taking their land? Like there were reasons to 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 have these outbreaks, to have these fights, to have this sort of violence. But it wasn't senseless in today's context of being senseless. It wasn't just I'm a pissed off old guy with way too many guns and I'm up in this building and I'm going to shoot these people at the concert below. That stuff didn't exist uh, then. Not in that way. Well, sure. Yes. However, statistically, you could make the argument to say that there were more pervasive, sure forms of violence in those eras than what we have, what we see now, which is in no doubt heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. No, but I completely agree with that rare. as well. It's very, very rare. Completely agree with now, that. Now, we, 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 we can say it's happening too frequently, and I think everybody can sure. agree that, that any time that we have once of uh, the most uh, violent mass shooting followed by less than a year later or slightly more than a year later, the next most violent mass shooting within such a short amount of time that it is our empathy that I think is our defining characteristic and something that, that does, uh, uh, you know, make me proud to be in a community that cares about stuff like this, that we do care about it. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the question that then, comes from that and I think is sometimes derailed because we are are too focused on arguing our specific solutions as opposed to dissecting the problem is, well, what do we do and mm-hmm. how do we solve it and how do we get right. past what, what I think is very regional, very regional uh, uh, opinions on what's reasonable and what's unreasonable gun ownership because I'm seeing a lot in the chat room. I heard a lot from from uh, uh, you know the, the I am Sci-Fi who just called in. I know a lot of people that own seven, eight, nine guns, and their family has owned seven, eight, nine guns, and they've passed it down from generation to generation. And either they are all in some cabinet or they're in locked stuff, and that's just what they do. Mm-hmm. And there are far, 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 far more people that have multiple guns, that have them for whatever reason they want to have them, and we can assign kind of motivations. And I do think sometimes some of the motivations are a little bit uh, uh, straw manny on on why would you need it, and I don't see the point. And for the record, 
despite the fact that I grew up in Florida, I did grow up with a gun in my house. Uh, my stepfather was a licensed security, private security uh, uh, officer uh, who had a licensed gun. I have never owned a gun. I probably will never own a gun. I have fled to a liberal enclave of uh, uh, the country for which I enjoy my avocado toast and protest uh, uh, for uh, justice around the world. Sure, right. Sure. Uh but that being said, I do think that there is very often on both sides of this issue specifically yeah. quite a lot of straw man argument. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I, to, to, to put a cap on my, my whole point was this. Statistics are not what people are arguing about. If we were arguing about statistics, it's pretty cut and dry. But then again, that kind of depends on your pr perspective. Statistics say that we have had less violent crime than we ever have in our history. People are eating better. People are living longer. People have better, better medical care. All these things are true. But the yeah. culture wars don't care about stats. The culture wars care about, usually about what they want and what their particular point of view is, and then the other side is a sort of the same thing. And you could even read some of those statistics and say, well, gun violence is down overall because uh, we're, we're better with our guns than we used to be. And other people would say, well, if there were no guns at all, just imagine the numbers we'd be at. Like, again, those statistics can be sort of skewed and used in whatever part of the argument people may have. But my point specifically is no one's arguing about those. And I will bet culturally, if you go yeah. back to the east of the Mississippi days of the 1800s, you probably looked at a culture that was more united in what it meant to be bearers of arms than they are today culturally. Statistically, it was a hellscape. Culturally, I'm not so sure about it. I'm not saying 100 yeah, percent either. I, I don't know. I, don't I, know. I, I guess I, I don't. I don't feel comfortable assigning any kind of 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 cultural thermometer to to some time that that long ago. Well, I think you can uh, though, because look at I, I'm saying. Look at what we're talking about today. Why does it matter today? Why aren't we just blowing it off then? If I guess what I'm saying. Oh is, no, I, I I I I think that there's a, there's a lot to argue. I guess uh, this is this is a a a a, a, a semantic argument on on like what I just feel comfortable saying and what you feel comfortable saying. And that's, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, let's, let's look at here. This, these are, are the stats right now. Again, 33,000 uh, people dead shot fatally in America. This is from 538. They did a great thing. 538.com slash featured slash gun dash deaths. Uh, 85% or sorry, two thirds of all uh, of those fatal deaths are suicide. 85% mm. of the suicide victims are male more than half the ages of suicides uh, are men 45 years or older the other third of all gun deaths about 12,000 each year are homicides more than half of those homicides are young men two-thirds of those are black all right that's how current what's the latest these poll stats from 2014. Okay, so pretty 2012 recent, to 2014. Pretty recent stuff. All right, those are that's it by the numbers. Speaking of numbers, we got another caller. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Cody in Indiana. Hello, Cody in Indiana. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Enjoying the uh, heated debate today. Good, good. What's uh, what's your take on all this? Well, I can come at it from kind of uh, both sides of the barrel, if you will. I've been a combat vet, um, served overseas, so used a gun, had guns, you know, used in my general direction. So, you know, you got to come at it. You can look at it from both ways mm -hmm. in that, you know, sense. Um, I think what we're really talking about is where we need to draw the line. 
and that's what a lot of these arguments come down to. Are you, are you guys familiar with a weapon called the Davy Crockett? Uh, no. Are it, you, what is it? I am not. It no, I'm not familiar with the Davy Crockett. Mm. Okay. It was a 1950s, like, three-man infantry-based nuclear weapon. Mm. Three dudes had the power to use a nuclear weapon. I think we can all agree that's too much. <laughs> yeah. What I'm getting at is what we have. Yeah, what we're talking about is where are we drawing the line? Yeah. Collectively, as a country right now, the line is on these assault weapons, whatever you want to call them. But if we're willing to put that line there, as a country, I think we need to be willing with living with some of these attacks because they're going to happen. Mm. Like, they ended up not deploying this weapon because eventually three dudes would end up using it. I think that's kind of my point. Oh, my if God. I'm looking weapons, this up. I'm looking this up right now. This thing is insane. This is crazy. <laughs> I never even heard of the freaking thing. That's crazy no, to me. This is again. This is why this show is awesome. Uh, no, this thing just looks like there's like a, a little like sawhorse, and you just have a nuclear, just a nuke <laughs> yep. on the end of it. Wow, look at that. Yeah, yep. I'm looking at it too. That's cr that's crazy. So three that took uh, three uh, men to operate it. Is that what you said? So it was it was the smallest nuclear weapon system ever built with a yield between uh, ten and twenty tons, a TNT equivalent. Wow, look at this thing! Yep. Chat just room. a small squad of people yeah. out there, you know, get scared one day or just decide to start World War Three. Or well, all right, this is a really good perspective because I hadn't really thought of it before, but you make a really good point. This is about drawing the line. Like, where is the line? And the line sometimes moves. Um. You know, you get the sense after Vegas that the line is going to be pushed by, you know, people are going to push real hard to push that line down uh, away from assault weapons, closer to handguns. Uh, this idea that some people get that weapons will just be removed, you know, uh, Obama's going to take all my weapons. I mean, it didn't happen in eight years. It's not going to happen now. If it didn't happen after Sandy Hook, I don't know when you're expecting that to happen, but I don't think anyone ever takes your guns. The question is, where do we draw the line? I completely agree with that. Where do you think it should be drawn as somebody who's had experience both militarily and, you know, as a civilian and, and, and seeing these things happen and, and go on and living your life, where do you where do you draw that line? I, I have some guns. I have many, many friends that have uh, have lots of weapons. We're, we live in a rural community. Uh, they have some of these assault weapons. I kind of lean on the side of uh, these weapons are a little bit closer to weapons of war, a little bit closer to being above that line towards the baby Crockett rather than simple you know, hunting rifles, which aren't that different. But, you know, we got to draw the line somewhere. And I'm thinking, eh, even as someone who's used these weapons, they're cool. They're really fun to shoot, you know. But it seems like the line needs to maybe move down a little bit. And I know a lot of people that, uh, at least in my area, would really disagree with that. Mm. Well, and, and part, of, part, of, part of that trepidation is that if we start moving it now, it's not necessarily whether or not we all agree if a, a bunch of gun owners are hanging around and saying, hey, look, gun owners only vote. Where should we put this line? You could put that line there. But the question is then, yeah, but I don't trust the government to stop at that line mm -hmm. and that they'll keep moving the line if we agree to move it one inch. Yeah. Um, yeah. You my original my original point about if, if we decide to stay here with these assault weapons and weapons of war, as a country, we're just going to have to live with the truth. You know, these things are going to happen. You know? So that's it. So that's a really I wanted to mention that, too, because you said it earlier. And I want to make sure we don't skip this. It's it's definitely. You know, 
actions and consequences because like things have consequences and one of the consequences we may have to at least reckon with of of looser gun laws is a greater recurrence of this even though it may ultimately statistically over time adhere to justin's point of things are at an all-time low it may still adhere to that but it, but it could mean an increase when people have this kind of availability when we don't i mean there's probably a whole nother show on mental illness and gun ownership and, and where where we could go with that um or, or or maybe it's just about talking about ways that that can be um approached because right now we're real bad at it nobody really knew this guy had issues and now we know he does and when did he have those did it happen overnight did it happen years ago like they're having a really hard time finding a motive um so because everything is so individual and there's no blanket way to deal with this stuff that line, wherever you put it, has consequences. And those consequences may mean less gun deaths, but more deaths from people ramming their cars into public. Or if you raise that line, it may mean more assault weapons are in the hands of crazy people because it's just more available and it means more deaths. Like, that's a really, really important point. Like, is that cost worth it? And I and that's what I think this whole thing wrestles with, right? I agree. Yeah. Well, it's a good point, dude. Thank, uh, awesome. Uh, perspective thank you thank you thank you so much for calling yeah it's really good um we're going a little over time so we probably got to uh run things down a little bit as always the show's not here to solve this problem no but i've learned a few things and this davy crockett dude freaking holy shit (laughs) i mean that's pretty crazy man that is nuts nuts. i didn't even know Uh, this was a thing so look what i knew but i i did want to make this point though the davy crockett is this monster thing that is sure a small mobile nuke device that requires a team of three, but that seems, wow, that seems very convenient. Only three of you needed to make this thing move. Uh, guess what? If this thing was really, I mean, for all I know, it is in development, but if there was a, a way to jump to 2017, I'll bet we could make something that only one guy had to fire off and he could hire it, hide it in his coat. You know, like technology moves forward, whether we want it to or not, and that includes weapons. So we're forever headed toward a place where it's not the same as the musket or the pellet gun. And I well, let's let's yeah. let's look at it like this. Here's my gun control legislation. All right, I'm b- jury law. Here. Got it. All right, I'm ready. I'm I'm looking at these numbers here, right? And I'm seeing that the vast majority of gun deaths could be caused by or could be repealed by men over the age of 45 not being allowed to own a gun, <laughs> or by like having like a federally mandated uh, therapy to mm. make sure that everything is is going okay. Yeah. We could massively reduce gun deaths if men over the age of 45 would stop shooting themselves. Wow. So <laughs> how would you so all right, so here's I'm going to I'm going to hear about your legislation and I'm in the opposing party and I'm going to hear about it and go, "Oh my gosh, can you imagine being discriminated against based on only your age? What is this country coming to?" Like, it'd never fly. So I think the other one's the one you're going to have to do. It's going to have to be some sort of mandated uh, or or more critical testing of people before they can own the gun. Well, uh, sure. I mean, that those would be actual solutions and not jokes. But Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like where your head's at, though. I like I like where we're headed with this. Uh, no, listen, again, uh, 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 there's there's a lot that we need to focus on. And, and to me, what I never want to do is in these conversations – uh, take away the empathy that we feel when awful things happen. Yeah. Because we will never be better unless we focus on 
where pain is and how to do better about it. Uh, the solutions that we have can be varied. Uh, I will say that the point of this show is that hopefully we can get better at talking about these kinds of uh, uh, solutions and, and get to something to go forward so we don't just spend all of our time pointing fingers at each other because the Russians published uh, uh, you know the right thing on Facebook that got us all riled up and made us hate our neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th this is too important. Yeah, the, I also the, the, I also think that what you're talking about not only is good in the immediate aftermath of these things and and, and even in the you know the the months following or months previous to events like this that empathy matters, but also it matters in the sense that this is how you suss out the people who will also be doing that that you'll want in elected office. It has a way of sussing out or flushing out those who are not behaving that way. Like a there's real power in that. There's there's power in in not telling everyone else how to do it. But just you yourself having that point of view and when something like this happens, not immediately jumping to, well, I better buy all my gun stuff now because they're about to take them away or not immediately jumping to take everyone's guns away because they're all murderers. Like come down in the middle a little bit, find, find some empathy for, for people in this thing. I mean, it's almost impossible to do, but, you know, find empathy for, I've, I've heard nothing but people just ripping on this dude's brother. And I and I think he's a little weird from what Wait, I can you're tell. Talk, you're talking about the Las Vegas, the, the Las uh, Vegas guy's brother. Sure. They're just piling on this guy as if somehow he's the one that did it, A or B, uh, just by association. He's as psycho as his brother was. Um, I don't think that's fair. I think that is a where, that where is. Are you reading that? Oh, all I, over I, the I've... place. Like, well, mainly social media, like comments and threads and stuff. I'm not reading it from like some mainstream. You know, yeah, the Wall Street like Journal US is not, News and World Report, no. like F the brother. No, no, no. It's like people, I, I realize, you know, read the comments and you get what you get. But my point is that that's a section of humanity, either showing or not showing empathy. So to me, there is as good example as any. But we, especially in our sphere of sort of internet nerds, gamers, pop culturists, that sort of thing, we can affect that kind of change i think you know we have some influence and we can we can try to build that sort of empathy and i just think that empathy leads to just better people in office better people making uh choices about the logistics of these sorts of laws and the enforcement of them or the re the reduction or the increase of them like uh, you know that's how that stuff's made and built and it becomes very starkly contrasted when when you have somebody in office who just shouldn't freaking be there and it's time for a change I'm not. This isn't a veiled right, Trump right, thing. Right. Yeah, it's not a veiled Trump were, thing. Man, you are you are doing so no, well. No, I don't. I knew so as well. soon as I said that, I realized that a you were going to say that. B people are going to hear it like that. I'm not talking. This is not a veiled attack at Trump. I will attack Trump head on. He's a dick. Yes, this has nothing yes, to do I with know. that. But my point is, and I mean mainly on like local, state, and community levels. Sure. It's powerful. It's like a, it's like a juice, man. The juice is loose. And I'm not talking about the juice. But OJ. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think it's going to do it for this. Uh, well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, go we ahead, do go ahead. Next week's poll. Next oh, yeah, week's next poll. week's poll. What are we doing? What do we got? Uh, Scott, I am nominating Native American sports team names. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say that sounds like a great idea, but I'm going to nominate safe places. Safe, safe spaces. Spaces, sorry. Safe spaces. <laughs> 
Safe spaces. You can go ahead and vote on that at uh, at Justin R. Young or at Scott Johnson on Twitter. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. We'll have that link up very soon, very shortly. Thank you all for being here and listening. Uh, send your email comments to Justin and copy me on them too, Scott Johnson. I like to read those. Justin's really good at sussing those out. But either way, Scott Johnson or sorry, sorry, uh, Scott at frogpants.com or Justin Robert Young at gmail.com, right? That doesn't have the R, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. No, we're going to have to come up with a communal email. We're going to we do it. Two emails. We're going to do it. But for now, do that. Send them to him. And uh, I, whatever I get on the site, I'll forward to him also. And a lot of you have been using frogpants.com for that. That's totally fine. I'll forward those as well. Uh, I think it's going to do it. Justin, thanks so much for this exhilarating discussion about gun control. And uh, I look forward to more next week. Anything Absolutely. else you'd like to say as we end here? Uh, uh, be be excellent. To be excellent to each other. Let Bill and Ted teach you what you did not want to be taught. Goodbye, everyone. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Frog Pants Network. Get more shows like this at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>